Welcome to the Develop Yourself podcast, where we teach you everything you need to land your first job as a software developer by learning to develop yourself, your skills, your network, and more. I'm Brian, your host. Today we have Zubin Pratap, ex-Google engineer, ex-lawyer, current software engineer, teacher, mentor, tech influencer. Welcome to the show, Zubin. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Brian. It's uh, it's really awesome to be here. You have such a great show, which is, I've listened to several podcast episodes now, and yeah, you, what a great name, by the way. Develop yourself. What I wish I could take it to take credit for it, but yeah, I it can I inherited the name. Doesn't yeah, matter. You're, right? you're holding that flag high, my friend, and it's such a great because it's got so many multiple meanings, all of which are really important. All of them. So appreciate that. It's funny because the way we met is a little background. Like I've seen your ads on like Instagram and I thought, who is this dude? Looks kind of like me. If you're, if you're watching this, if you have, if you're subscribed to the newsletter and you're lucky enough to see my editing skills for the image I'm going to put up, it's going to be an image of me and Zubin side by side. We look kind of like we could be long lost brothers. But anyway, I saw your ad <laughs> in Instagram and I thought, and I, I clicked into it and I thought, this guy knows what he's talking about. It was no BS. It was really good stuff. One of the reasons I reached out to you, we're also in a tech creators Slack group. And I just saw you're, you're genuine. You seem to really want to help people. You have the technical foundation and you have a really interesting story, which I want to get into as well. Yeah, man, keen to get into it. Um, I think there's so much, one of my commitments to people is there's a lot of, especially as we gone into this influencer culture the last seven years, it wasn't like this. I've been around 20 something years in the workforce and it's so easy to put out BS out there and to capitalize on hope um, and kind of exploit it that I've taken a commitment when I put stuff out, it's no BS. Uh, I could be wrong, but I mean it. You know, I'm not BSing. I, maybe I'm wrong. It, you know, you, you never know if, if you're truly right as things change, but I, it's never going to be a place of BS. I truly believe what I'm saying. I, I, I appreciate that. I also think that humans are really good at detecting disingenuousness and we can smell it on people. <laughs> It's so, 100%. I think the more genuine you can be, the better for your business. Not only is it good for you selfishly, but I think it's just good morally as well. Yeah, totally. Totally. And you, it's, it's all, I, and I believe in long play, in long, um, in long term games, right? Like I, I played a long game for everything. And I think reputation and credibility is a long game. It's not, you cannot, you cannot play the short game with stuff like you. It's, it's just not possible. I hear that. And sp speaking of the long game. So you played a very long game with your career. You were a lawyer. Can you kind of walk us through? So you're a lawyer. You also were an ex-Google software engineer. So you went from, you made it to like the pinnacle of most jobs, which is like, I'm a lawyer, top of the top. And you say, you know what? I want to be a software engineer. Now you went to Google. What was the process to get to Google? Like, how'd you study and be able to be a hireable software engineer at one of the best companies? In the um, so in terms of the process, I, I think people assume there's some sort of formula. So there isn't really because it's one thing to know how to code. So just the thing with the fan companies is the interview process is not really about coding. L let me let me let me re re reframe this. Um, lots of very good coders never make it through the fan interviews. Lots of really bad coders will do well in the DSNA stuff, right? Because building yep. things and cracking DSA problems are totally things. And what I think a lot of people don't realize, and again, I realize this because I've been on the hiring side in three, three careers, four countries, and it's the same, is the interview is a different skill set altogether. 
Doing the job is a totally different skill set. Getting the interview is a totally different skill set. Negotiating the right offer and picking the right one, completely different skill set, right? And so for something like Google or Indeed All Fang, like, I mean, I'm sitting in Australia and I got, I think I had Snapchat, Facebook, Google, Amazon interviews and stuff, right? Sitting out here, right? And yeah. how do I get interviews? I have no background in coding and stuff. Well, I did have other things in my background that helped. I had a strong track record. Now, most of the students who come to coaching don't actually have strong track records, even in their existing career. Mm-hmm. I did have a strong track record. So I could give credibility signals on the basis of that, right? Um, so that's one. Yeah, you have to have a strong record. Two, I'd been rejected from fan companies at the interview stage maybe about 10 times by that time, over 10 years in multiple careers. Okay. Okay. And when I got the Google one or the, the Amazon one or the Facebook ones, it was always by earning a referral. Now, that was different four or five years ago. Like you had to earn the referrals. These days I see people just giving out referrals to someone they don't know. And they want that money. They want the money. And I think that's the problem mm-hmm. with the wrong incentives is I, I personally do not agree with that, right? Here's why. I would not refer someone into my company until I felt that they were the kind of people I'd want to work with. Not just technically. Technical is one thing. But you can teach people the technical skills. You can't, unless you give someone a brain transplant, you can't give them a new personality. Right. So, you know, I, very true. I have a very strong view on that. Um, and so I don't refer people in unless I'm, I'm sure that they're the kind of people I'd want in my environment. You know, just the same way, like you wouldn't invite anyone over to your house. I take the same guarded mentality. Now people could say, oh, you're being a gatekeeper. You could argue that, right? You could argue that I'm gatekeeping, but I'm also quality controlling. Now, you know, I don't know what the difference is. Um, a- protecting your, your reputation too. I mean, ultimately you're saying, hey, I vouch for this person. Exactly. You want to protect your own reputation. Exactly. I mean, I did put a LinkedIn survey and a lot of, I think about 30% people that felt that a referral is not a recommendation. I don't agree with that perspective. I think a referral is an implicit recommendation that this person should join the company um, as opposed to just being a lead for the company. If you're just being an alternative to LinkedIn lead, that, I wouldn't call that a referral. I'd call that a lead. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, imagine like a four person company, you refer somebody, they get on there and they say, oh, didn't you refer this person? And they're terrible. That's not going to be a fun feeling. No. And especially if you want to go into leadership roles, um, that sort of stuff, your ability to bring in talent, to qualify them correctly, to make sure that they're right, to grow the team, to build output, that stuff will haunt you forever. Like a bad code, everyone's oh, done, yeah. you know, and you, everyone will recover from bad code because you can fix that stuff. You can roll back. It's not easy to roll back a hire, man. You know, you can't get commit and get reset. Hate, you know, <laughs> it's not the same thing, right? It's hard, hard to get rid of people. It's, it's true. It's like, I've, I've seen that. I'm, I'm very lucky to have a great team of people and like, I've changed our hiring process around, but I've seen firsthand that it can be very difficult to remove people that you may not want you're not in that position now luckily but yeah it's it's not as simple as like you know hey you're not working out see it's like oh yeah could be a year-long process totally uh to do that and and, and it's messy and it's you know legally fraught and all that and and so you know going back to the Mm -hmm. process about the google stuff also is again i realized that most most employers had implicitly had this rule but google made it explicit in that they'd rather say no to a great candidate than accidentally hire a bad candidate right so yes i've heard that yeah so they'd rather have a false negative than a false positive now, most people don't fully analyze why that is, but really it's this, exactly what we just talked about. 
they'd rather say no to a good candidate because not there, there are plenty of good candidates in the market, right? And saying no to a good candidate doesn't bring you down or affect the business as much as saying yes to the wrong candidate because it's hard to get rid of them. You have to give them a shot. There's training costs involved. There's legal risks involved. And there's cultural damage while you figure out how to exit them as well. You know, so it is very, people don't understand how costly recruitment is. So when I understood, okay, they'd rather rule me out incorrectly than rule me in incorrectly. Um, mm -hmm. I'm like, so clearly it can't be about the technical skills then. They're obviously looking for more. Obviously, logically, because if they're happy to say no to a great candidate. Why would they do that? Right? It's clever. Why would they do that? So, and it, yeah. it helped me a lot that I was on the hiring side. So I was able to reverse engineer this from first principles. I'm like, well, what have I done when I've hired? Yeah, even if there was a great candidate, if this, you know, and obviously I didn't come from an engineering background, but, you know, there was a lot more subjectivity allowed in previous careers, especially in service professions like law, where, you know, it's pretty mm -hmm. client facing, you know. If you can't handle that right, and that's very subjective, then you know you can't test for client-facing skills. You can test for passing an algorithm or passing tests, right? You can do that, but yeah. just for client-facing. So I believe that that subjectivity is important. So I'm like, okay, there's more that I got to do. So first, I got to get a referral. Then I've got to do it's table stakes to do well enough at the DSA stuff that they know you know what you're talking about. You may not complete it in time. Mm -hmm. You may even go down the wrong path. But you're reasoning correctly, you're thinking about the problem correctly, you're communicating and collaborating, you're showing your curiosity, your willingness to learn, you're showing that you're not married to idea of ideas of path dependent and stuff. So that's another thing. Let's assume you clear that. Then you've got to do the culture fit, the higher fit, the behavioral stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And that is entirely dependent on your communication skills, but mo even more than that, understanding why they may rule you out. Right, because remember, even if you pass the technical stage, they could still rule you, and that's often a very team-specific thing and an individual-specific thing. So you got to learn how to read. Yeah, you got to learn to understand what's important to this hiring manager, what's important to the team, and this comes down to asking good questions, doing your due diligence on them, and then I would often just tell people, "Can you tell me what's important for you?" And I will tell you whether or not I'm actually able to deliver on that. And if that's important to you. Fine, this is how I would do it because this is important to you. So if I'd get a question, you know, um, if you read the values about a company, you'll know. Like, you know, the company I'm working right now, Chainlink, for example, one of the values is this constructive dialogue thing where it's, it's okay to disagree with people with how you do it matters. That, for sure. That's a really important point. And it's, it's so fundamental to everyday experience, right? Understanding these values means you can, you can call them out and then say, in this context, given that this is important to you, this is how I'd approach it for you. It's not the same way I'd approach it for somebody else who doesn't value this or has a different value around this. You know, you have to tailor it to that person, but that involves asking questions. And a lot of candidates, they're so nervous during the interview that they don't ask questions, you know? I fell in that trap. I went to Google, got on site, and I did very well on the technical round that I was really shocked when I didn't get the offer because I thought, oh, I just, I nailed it all. Yeah. But I was so nervous and I was way too over-focused on that and I didn't get it overall. Still a really cool experience yeah. and it really like in, enforced me to learn DSA, which I had not previously. Um, but man, that is like, that is an amazing story. I, never, I wish I had heard this advice when I was going for it. I think I would have had a, a bit of a different approach yeah. to it. Instead of being like a coding robot, I would have been a little more, showed up a little bit more like myself and maybe done some more research in general on the people interviewing me and other things. This was an in, in on 
on-site, in-person one. You know the people's names ahead of time as well. Yeah. Well, and you know, there's only so much you can also do about this on the day. And you know, I mean, fortunately, Brian, you've done really well. And this is, a, I think, I, I, something I really want people to understand is it says nothing about you if you don't make it to one of these companies. And equally, it says very little about you, I believe, if you do. Because if they're happy to say no to good people, all you can say is you're one of the good people if you got in. You cannot say you're not one of the good people if you didn't get it. Like, it's just logic, right? I like, I like that you said that. I think too many people wrap up like their dream or their personality and like only get into one of these like top five. I'm like, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of companies. I mean, I don't make that number up, but there's a lot of companies out there that write code and a lot of excellent software engineers out there that have never been at any of the letters in FANG or MANG or whatever the acronym is now. 100%. I'm in each of these companies, like I was in Google, I've seen it directly there, but even I have lots of friends in Amazon and, and Microsoft and LinkedIn and all these places. Not everyone's happy. Not everyone's doing great work. Not everyone's fulfilled. Not everyone's having growth. We can't assume that the brand is the experience, like the consumer's perspective of the brand is not the employee's experience of it internally. Like these two totally different things, you know? And, and we, we need to realize that we have to be clear what our goals are. I would argue my first dev job, there were four people. I was the fifth. And it was a startup being bootstrapped from the ground up. I would say I learned more there in that one year across the board in terms of all the skills than I did at Google in my first year. Even though at Google, I learned a lot more technical stuff. But I learned a lot mm -hmm. more overall from being that close to the road, you know, that I was in the, that makes perfect in the first sense. four or five. And so it depends on what you value. Right? If you want to be more rounded, you don't want to be in a, in a team where you're just going to be doing, you know, and let's be honest, these giant companies, they have giant processes and they have giant code bases. Your velocity is a bit lower. Your chain sets are smaller. You know, there's a lot of ramping up involved. And that's great. You learn a lot. There's no question that you'll, you'll be an outstanding engineer if you spend time there. No question about it. But you can all mm -hmm. do that elsewhere. That's the point. Like, it's not mutually exclusive. I, I, yeah, I told, totally agree from what I've heard. I can't speak from experience, but I've heard this story a lot. And now I'm curious, which leads me to what made you leave Google? So a couple of things. So, um, on the personal front, uh, my marriage is starting to, and so I was hired for the Mountain View office. We packed up, we sold the house, we booked the freight, we put things, you know, in container. And then the U S shut down by this time, Australia had already shut down, right? We'd already been in a hard lockdown for about five months and. Under the Trump government, the U.S. was a little bit slower to lock down than, than a lot of the other countries were. So Google said, oh, we'll do it next quarter. We'll do it next quarter. So I ended up working largely remotely. And I learned a lot about remote work and engineering. I'm, I'm not necessarily a fan of it. I don't think it's the panacea people think it is. Like, it's, it's very fraught, right? Anyway, I did that. But I was in the Melbourne office because some of us are allowed to go into the Melbourne office every now and then. And I made some great um, And then... When they opened up and they said, well, why don't you come over to, uh, to Mountain View? I said, I, I'd be happy to, but you know, there's some personal stuff going on with my then ex-wife. You know, we're still very good friends. Um, and that also changed a bit during COVID because we went through an 18-month lockdown, which was brutal here in Melbourne. Like, it was intense. And I'm the only child. For personal reasons, I'm like, my parents live in Europe. I want to try and work remotely now, now that I understand how to do it. I don't think... Yeah, it, it's not the kind of thing I would recommend for people who don't have some solid experience behind them, um, right? Because it it requires a completely different workplace dynamic. But th so those two reasons, um, and also as much as I was learning at Google, I realized I could stay on in the Google Australian offices, but the kind of work they were doing wasn't quite aligned with my longer term goals. Like you know, it was it was a very different kind of engineering, and 
man, I was 41 at this point in time and I didn't want to, I'd made one rule to myself, right? When I said, what would I do if I was 20? I'd said, but with the benefit of being in my late 30s and 40s. You know, what would I do if I was 20, but with the wisdom of somebody who'd been around 20 years? And I realized the, one of the big reasons for staying at Google was the pay, the comfort, um, the people, um, and, and the fear of giving up the prestige. Right. Mm. And I'm like, those are reasons that are no longer valid for me. The people is a valid reasons so that made it really hard. But I'm like, where do I want my career to grow? You know, do I want adventure or do I want status? You know, that was the big choice for me. And I realized I want the, yeah. you know, I want the adventure. And then the blockchain place is starting to, I'm, I was a bit on the fence about the whole blockchain thing. Some, some respects I still am, but I'm like, where can I find the best people? Yeah. Where could I learn from them in a, in a fairly risky environment? Because that's where the adventure is. That's where the growth of the opportunity lies, the green space. Um, because Google is a very large company. People think it's not a startup. It's a very large company and it feels like it on the inside sometimes. But the people are amazing. So it was a difficult trade-off, but it was partly personal and partly my need for adventure. I like that a lot. I think that's really cool that you did that because a lot of people said, okay, I'm done now. I made it. I kind of made it, you know, and yeah. you've decided that seems like a little bit of a thread throughout maybe your life. Then, okay, I did lawyer. Now I just started into entrepreneurship. Now I'm a software engineer. Now into that. And now also what led you to start teaching and coaching others too? Oh, I've been doing that for a while now, but, you know, probably more formalized now because I didn't really realize that, you know, online coaching was, was going to be such a thing, but I'd been mentoring and coaching people for years now, right? Even when I made my first career change. Um, and this is the thing, people, man, when I went from law to the business side, I got rejected. I was on, you know, Alan Stein's podcast recently about that. And I think I got rejected over 50 times internally from the company I was in, even though I was in the top five performance. Wow. Okay. Internally in the company that I already had five years of reputation in, and I was in the top 5%, right? And that made me think, I'm like, people think it's about learning code. Career change is a completely different from learning to code, right? Learning to code is the obvious part. It's the, it's the bit that everyone thinks they need to do, but it's table state. Mm -hmm. To be honest, stick it to the dance. Most people who learn to code will never successfully change their career statistically. Like the vast majority will never do because it's a completely different ballgame. The, the new industry you want to move to is going to have an allergic reaction to you as an outsider. That's, mm. that's just how it is. It's like you're an, you know, it's going to release antibodies, right? And I realized that the first time I did this was everyone said, you're a smart guy. We've seen how you handle, you know, deals and operations. You work really well with people. Uh, there's no reason why you can't change into a business role. Great. Will you give me a job? No. What? Why not? Well, yeah. there are other candidates that are less risky and, you know, there's, you know, HR and I have to defend this to my boss. And basically it was too hard and I was too much of an unknown. They had all the faith in me as a person, but they weren't willing to bet on it. Right. I've seen that. I think we've all seen that. Yeah, that, that's a, that's interesting. I never would have thought all my my whole career has basically just been software. So I can only relate it to that. I It's funny because I'm you're kind of. Opening my eyes, the same issues exist everywhere else. And this is what I keep saying on LinkedIn. Like, you know, and I respond yeah. to other people's posts. I'm like, guys, this is not unique to tech. I'm not saying that, you know, tech doesn't have, I'm saying it's not unique to tech. These are meta principles that I've seen over 20 years, four countries, three careers. And there are slight differences in each industry. In each industry. There are important differences, but the principle is the same. A hiring manager has a job to get done, has lots of other alternatives, and you're a risky one. 
At this point in time, you're not even going to get invited to the interview because quite simply, why should they? Why should they write the degree? Your people, I think, think that people want to take a chance on them. And like, I'll be honest, I do like to take a chance on people. I mean, I'm like, I'm also an outlier and I still can't. I still like, right? let's listen. I, this is not a charity case as much as I would love to. Thank you. I can't because I don't want to look bad either. I'm really curious though. Like, what do you, when you code people, how, besides learning to code as a technical skill, a foundational skill, you're right. Like, there's so much more to it. What are the things you work on with people? And like, how do you see people succeed typically? So I have a view on this, right? So I, occupy the niche where, okay, again, I'm very goals focused, right? Because you can't make a plan until you're clear. Like if you want to go from San Francisco to New York and you head south, you're never going to get there. Okay. It doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter how smart you are. So direction is more important than speed. In which case, start with the right goals. So I tend to focus mainly on people who are in full-time jobs, typically in their 30s, have family and obligations that make it hard for them to quit and go into a boot. Right now, I did do a boot camp for a week in the U.S. I left my family behind. When then I came back, when I realized that the, that particular boot camp, and I can't speak for them all because you know it, it's very different. I think yours is quite different because you yourself have got such a great life story. You know, you you have done the change. You you weren't a dyed in the wool. You know, started out to be a science. You made the switch, right? So I think your boot yeah. makes a lot more sense. I didn't know about yours, and I you know I guess you you weren't in it back then. This was you know 2018. Um. But I came back because I realized from there, I was going to learn to code with people with a significantly less risk profile than me. I was 36, 37 or whatever it is. And they were mm-hmm. five. Um, and my focus was career change, not learning to code. Right? And I was like, ah. I'm not going to be able to do that. For you. Because, you know, a lot of them haven't been on the hiring side. Plus, I wasn't happy. I mean, I was, I'd done the startup. And so I hadn't worked for a while. So I was happy mm-hmm. to pull down from the mortgage and spend, you know, 20 something thousand US not including accommodation because I was going to be in San Francisco for three and a half months. It was going to be very expensive. And I'm like, okay, I, yes, sir. I was in a position of privilege where I could pull down from the mortgage, blink my eyes and hope that it was all going to work out. Like just clench my eyes shut and hope for the best because I'd already done the risk to the startup right? and I'd already lost money. But most people aren't in that position. It's terrifying for people to have to leave their jobs, pay the mm-hmm. fees, leave their jobs, lose income. So now you've got lost income plus bootcamp fees. And then you don't know when you're going to get back into the job market again. So there's all those costs mounting up. And I realized it's a small segment of people um, and they're typically in their 30s. And so what happens to them, right? So I said, okay, I'm going to try and help those people. Oh, right. And that means I have to work a lot on mindset. I have to work on personally, you know, coaching them. And, you know, I've had students in over eight countries and, Pretty much 100% of the people who follow the, the plan get success. And that's because each person's plan is different. Like if I say, hey, Brian, mm-hmm. how do you get to London? Your answer is going to be totally different from mine. Why? Because if we have different starting points, we're choosing different modes of transport. You know, everyone thinks, oh, I'm going to, you know, I want to learn to code. Oh, I want to become a coder, which is going to London. Yeah, but where are you starting from? How much do you know? You know, how much you need to know? What do you not know that's going to be important, especially if we know that people would rather rule out a good candidate than rule in a wrong candidate? What else do you need? You know, and that's very individual and it's extremely time consuming. So I work with seven, eight people at a time at most for 12 months. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that. That sounds about right, to be honest. I think that's the reality even before the 
current market. I don't know. And it's hard to determine now in this market. Cause I, I get, I get my views skewed by social media. I'm on it, yeah. you know, as much as everybody else. And I am curious, like, what have you seen change, if anything, between like, you know, back when you were getting hired and, and now, like, what, what are the things that are helping people to get hired or de-risk themselves? So a couple of things, structurally, it's a different market cycle, right? So when I was getting hired, it was towards the tail end of a bull run. 2018, 2019, and just before COVID. Um, so there was a lot of tailwind, which helped, but also the run didn't last very long. People who are starting now, like I tell my students who are joining these days, I'm like, look, it's going to look bleak for a while. It's going to take longer than you expect, but you're going to be at the start of the next bull run, which means you've got another 10 to 15 years of going up to that. Okay? So play the long game. That's one. I reckon it's actually harder today than ever before for all the wrong reasons. There's too much information and mm. too much BS. And I, I think, man, when you've been around a while, 10 years ago, when you were applying for jobs, did we use LinkedIn the way we do now? Oh, I wasn't even on LinkedIn. Right. And that yeah. people don't realize how fast things change. I speak to recruiters all the time. They've got too many people applying. So when you think about things like, why did they use ATS and filters? It's not because they don't want to find the best person. It's because their workload's too high. Why is their workload? Oh, yeah. Right? But why is their workload too high? It's because when information becomes free, the signal to noise ratio drops dramatically. In other words, there's a lot more crap in the system than good water. That's what happens when the information is free. There's too much bullshit. Absolutely. Right? So now they need bullshit filters. Students need bullshit filters. Teachers and coaches need Why? Because information is free. If anything is free, it has no value by definition. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. So I'm not a fan of free information because I think it leveled the playing field, but what it also did is it made it impossible to choose. And I read a book in 2003, oh, yeah. which was very influential, you know, Barry Schwartz, the, the Paradox of Choice. We're cognitively not good at choosing when we have too much choice. And what does too much information do? It overwhelms you with too much choice. Right? I've seen people do this thing, this learn, which you've probably seen, these learning loops. I call it like the hamster style, hamster wheel style learning. Yeah. I'll talk to somebody and they're learning and they go and they're like, DevOps, Python, JavaScript, C Sharp. I heard is it that you should do this AI now. And then they're just, just, aggregating this uh, insane amount of skills. And I talked to them like a year later, two years later, they're still on the hamster wheel. And I'm thinking like, this is like, it's cool. I love it. Like maybe at our stage too, there's a lot of information out there and we can pick and choose now and kind of identify mega trends, micro trends. And it's still really difficult oh, to right. filter out stuff. But if you're new, it's like overwhelming. I couldn't really imagine like how you just decide like, this is the path I'm going to go down because everybody's telling you something different. It's impossible and it's unrealistic because when you don't know what you don't know, you can't intelligently choose. Mm -hmm. And so you're forced into start, stop, start, stop, start, stop, dabble, 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 dabble. And then you, how do you possibly have confidence in your judgment when you have no basis for that judgment? Like it's guesswork. Right. Yeah. And so, or the first person you meet, it could be just the first person that happened to pop in your feed that you saw. And then that person may lead you astray because they, a lot of times, the people that are telling people software information aren't actually software engineers, which is even more mind blowing to me. It's terrifying. It's honest. And I keep telling people, I'm like, look, if you're going to do something, find someone who's available, which is hard enough. 
But it's not mm-hmm. pretty much exactly what you want to do. Because there are lots of people who've done things similar. But look, just because I've been to a restaurant in New York, if I've never been to one in Toronto, doesn't mean I'm qualified to give you a restaurant recommendation in Toronto. Just because I've been to the finest restaurants in New York doesn't qualify me. I've never been to Toronto. I mean, I tell my kids this. I told my son this. He wants to get into fashion. I said, look, I don't know anything about that. I said, what you need to do, find somebody that's done it. Yes. Ask him, how did you do it? <laughs> and then say, can I pay you? Hey. Or can I apprentice with you? No. If, you, if they want money, say, hey, how much does it cost for me to learn from you? Yeah. You know, And just get that information. And this is so, I'm so glad you're teaching your kids to be willing to invest because that's the other thing the free information thing has done, has made people believe that just because I can get the information for free, I can get the outcome for free. No. That, no. In fact, exactly the opposite. If you want to know what information to ignore, that's now got value. Right? In a world of free information that has no value, what has value is knowing what to ignore. Right? And that's any yeah. boot camp, any college. They may be teaching you all the same stuff. It's the same textbooks, the same whatever. You, you know, you go to mm-hmm. MDN and read the documentation for the basis of JavaScript. It's the same. For sure. Right? Yeah. What are they actually helping you with? They're helping you put your focus in one place and structuring your time so that you don't yeah. do crap. <laughs> that's where the value yeah. lies now. You know, that's where the value lies. And so I'm, I'm glad you're teaching your kids to invest in stuff like that because to be honest, this entire... Man, never before in the human in the history of humankind has anyone said I can acquire something for free and sell it to somebody else for a hundred thousand dollars every year. Yeah, right. Which mark I want a six figure career and I want to pay a single dollar to learn anything I've Correct. I will not pay once to get six figures every year for the rest of my life. And this is Yeah. These are people who claim to know economics. <laughs> How? How? How is this even Oh man? It's just basic logic. You know, it's basic logic, but people, you know, they're being sold a lot of bullshit. One thing I loved about, you know, your podcast and, 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 and your material on your website, um, I did take a look at parsities. You're very clear. Mm-hmm. This is the first step. And there's, there are other steps. You've got to do this. There are steps. Step, right? There are step by step. And so this will take you to the next step. Most people don't say that. They're not honest enough to say, say that. They'll be like, this will take you to where you want to go. No, it won't. It absolutely will not. Uh, this is this is the first step. This is how you get started. You got to do all this other stuff. So that's kind of what I do with my students, and they don't need to quit their jobs, um, and they don't need to take all that risk. Yes, of course, there's an investment. You know, what I, I'll tell you what I've had a couple of people come to me and say, "Well, you have no right to not help people and charge." You know, to, or if you want to help people, you're not really helping; you're charging. And I'm like, "Oh wow, yeah, I know, great, great logic." So I said, "So you want me to coach you for for free?" And they're like, "Yes." I said. Done. Agreed. You've got to give your first year as a software engineer for free. Oh, no, no. Yeah, right. There you go. I can't do that. Why not? Do you not want to help people for free? Like I said, I will yeah, right. do a job at an NGO, not for profit, right? Where you're doing good work with the engineering skills, but you've got to do it for free. Not a single person is taking me up on that. Yeah. I'd love to see somebody do that. But that's a wild statement. It does blow my mind sometimes. And I'm like, and it's like, you're free to also, you don't have to. Like, that's the nice thing. Like, I want to pay people. I love, like, when I became an engineering manager, the first one was like, who can I like pay to tell me what I'm doing because I need to know? And also, I'll be honest, if something's free, there's less incentive for me or most people to actually finish it. It's the reason I paid for like personal trainer or, 
uh, engineering manager coach, like a person to mentor me or whatever. You know, I mean, you're right. It has it, it has value. If you don't put all the books I was gifted, most of the books that I was gifted or which I got for free and stuff, I didn't finish reading compared to the ones that I paid for. It's just it's the well best known life hack in the world. Put skin in the game, it'll sharpen your focus and you'll get shit done. You know. No, yep. exactly like you said, pay for the pay for the fitness person and suddenly your diet improves. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Seven years with like on my own, I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I'm just kind of figuring this stuff out. And in three months, this dude got me like the best shape of my whole life. And I was like, damn, that was crazy. I can't believe that like that actually worked. And I'm like, I just I needed direction and somebody just like just reduce the cognitive overload totally. for me. Like, just tell me what to do. Totally. And the shortcut is getting the insight, not the information, right? Exactly. Said. By the way, I had a non-technical coach because for me, the technical stuff, I was like, okay, I think I can make this plan on my own. That four years of trial and error behind. I knew what, I went through my diary and I said, okay, all these things didn't work. So if I did the opposite, logically, I didn't even know about, you know, uh, inverse thinking from uh, a Charlie Munger that I only found out about later, but I did the same thing. This didn't work, so do the opposite, right? And I had a non-technical coach, and all she did with me was make me work on my cognitive process, how I think about things, because thoughts drive behavior. Now, this cognitive restructuring is a huge part of what I do with my students because it helps them for the rest of their career, right? And to your point about you know the, the results you get when you invest a little bit, I keep telling people, I'm like, look, no matter what you do, you're paying in three resources. You're going to pay time, you're going to pay money, you're going to pay energy. But they dials on a stereo system, okay? I'm showing my age by talking about stereo systems here, but you know, they dials on a music system because you increase one, it affects the other. If you want to take a bus from New York to San Francisco, you'll save money, you'll lose time. If you want to take a plane, you'll, you'll lose money or you'll spend more money, but you'll save a lot of time. You decide what resource is valuable for you. And for every month that you're not a software developer, and let's say you start off at 80 grand or 90 grand, every month you're losing 6K. Every month that you're late to that party, you're losing 6K. Okay? So if, if somebody gets you there even three months faster or four months mm -hmm. faster, the question is, is that an investment or not? And by the way, how much did you, I'd always ask people this, how much have you spent on your car? Can you, on your what? On your car, right? Oh, on your car, yeah. And can you sell that next year for more money? No. So that's the difference between an expense and an investment. I like the way you reframe this. This is a really, I think, powerful way to, to rethink. It took me a long time to do that. I had like this whole hustler, you know, penny pinching mentality. And as soon as I let go of that, I mean, I've just seen not only, you know, I think not everything's about money, but it's, it's a little bit about money too. I mean, I enjoy making, I've, I've been broke and I've been not broke and I much prefer being not broke. Yeah. And I've just seen how quickly I was able to ramp up through like acquiring knowledge and, and getting the right people around me and, and seeing that like this is an investment that actually has like a monetary payoff a gain and also confidence and other things that are like less tangible. Yeah. But I just saw quickly how how much that accelerated my career. The moment I like started saying, I feel okay investing in myself and paying for things, even after I got hired. That's when I actually started investing the most in myself. Yeah. And that's exactly so I mean for me to change my money mindset about investment versus expense. That cost me $25,000 to break through, ironically. <laughs> right? like, and that just, yeah. look at how much it unlocks in life. But question for you, Brian, given your specific incredible journey and really remarkable. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, I appreciate the fact that you, you, that you have done that because 
people have no excuse when they have people like you that they can always aspire to do something, you know, that they didn't think was possible. But that's where this, this question about the mindset thing is for you to make that switch without evidence is a leap of faith. Do you see the first step? Now we know that the right investment of money is always a game changer, right? And that, mm-hmm. that one thing. And the other thing we know is that it's never as bad as you think before you spend it. And then once you invest it, even if it's a biggish number, you don't actually stress about it that much. You know, it's, it's okay. You, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. You don't really think about it after it's done. You think about it before it's done. That's always the way. It's so weird. Totally. Yeah. I've had people come to me and say, I actually don't remember how much your program costs. And I'm like, do you remember how much you fretted about it before you joined? No. I'm like, you were fretting about it. <laughs> you know, that's so funny. I was, I just went through this right now. I'm like paying somebody to help out with like ads and marketing. And like before, I'm like, oh, oh, oh. then I paid them. Like, yeah, now I'm ready to pay them more. I'm like, oh, great. See, I want, I want to give you more money. There you go. How, and so this is the, the question for you is the first one's a leap of faith mm-hmm. without any quote unquote evidence. How did you make that leap of faith? Because I think that's what people need to learn from you is when you don't have the evidence and you have to bet on yourself and you could lose because there's always a chance of loss and a strong chance of loss, how do you still bet on yourself? So that's an interesting question. And, I, and I've completely leaned into my optimism. I've always been a fairly optimistic person and some people would even say naive. Mm-hmm. And I've really leaned into that. And I think people think, oh, yeah, it's going to hurt you. It, it has not. It has in some ways for sure, but overall it's, it's been incredibly helpful. I'm, I'm naive enough to think that I can actually do something, even if life may have told me no. Now I ha- now I can look back and I have enough instances where I've won the game that I've like, okay, I have enough evidence now to believe in myself. Uh-huh. But before that, you're right, I had none. So I was at this stage where I was like, well, this is about as bad as it can get, right? Like I was in a really bad situation, you know, an intervention. If you want to hear more about it, you can go back to another episode and hear about my, my sordid life history. Um, but anyway, I was like, okay, well, this is about as far down as I can go. So what's, what's the worst? I mean, I had not much to lose at this point. And I thought, you know, let me spin the wheel. And I thought, and my mom would tell me things like say, well, here's the thing. You spin the wheel and maybe you lose the money and you don't get what you want. So what? You're, st- you're still in the same position. Uh-huh. Maybe you spin the wheel and you get lucky and you go ahead. And I thought that's a, I was going to do it anyway, but I liked the way she, she phrased that and kind of helped me think through that. And so now, but since then, I've built up enough cases where I'm like, I can look back. I know being optimistic is much more practical than being pessimistic. And when I look at people that are pessimistic versus those that are optimistic, I'm always going to choose to be in the optimistic group. And and show me something as a hiring manager. Let's extend that logic, right? As a hiring manager, because I have my answer for this, probably coincide with yours, but I'm curious to know yours. If you were faced with prospects who had career changes, would you choose the ones that had the guts to risk it and invest in themselves? Or would you choose the person who was trying to sort of get by on, on deals and bargains? Who would you say had the more commitment? Oh, absolutely. The person that put it all on the line, right. you know? Right. And who would you trust? It tells you about their mindset. Exactly. This is the point I keep trying to tell people is one of the signals you can give to your to your hiring manager, if you're trying to change career and become a coder, is to show that you wanted it bet more than everybody else they've spoken to. And words are so easy, man. Like in Game of Thrones, words are win. I've never had someone come to me and say, Zubin, I'm totally not committed. Everyone who comes to me is like, I'm committed, dude. 
this is this is happening. This is happening. I'm so good. I'm so strong about this. I'm I'm such a hard worker. When I say something, it'll happen. Yeah. No one's ever come to me and said, you know, I do it when it's convenient. I do it during business hours. I do it when I feel like it. Otherwise, I don't don't give a shit. No one ever says that, right? So what yeah. mean nothing? Where is the evidence that you backed yourself? Where is yeah. the evidence? And as a hiring manager, I don't care what computer science school you went to or what law school you went to. If you took more risk and sacrificed more and showed more grit, what it does tell me is that you want this more than the other person. Totally. That's been the deciding factor a lot of times. I'll be honest. Like I've been in like in, where you're talking to people like this person's really good. This person's really good. And sometimes it does come down to that because like, I think I've seen this on walls at like the startup I was at or like in our own coding like handbook at my current company. Like grit is a thing that we want from people. Grit. We really want people to have grit. And the willingness um, to be wrong and to lose. Mm -hmm. You gotta be willing to lose. You know, once, lose once, lose twice, because that's the only way you're gonna win. And more importantly, that that belief, the more you lose and the more you keep persisting, the less you need faith. Weirdly, a lot of people yeah. think you need more faith. That's not actually true. The more you realize you survive and you picked yourself up and you can keep going on, the less faith or leap of faith is required because you know what you can. It's who you become in this process, not how much money you save. Like, what's the point of saving 15 grand for the privilege of never succeeding? Well, why? Great. You've, you've held on yeah. 15 or 20 grand or 10 grand or whatever it is that people put out, whatever. Great. And now you've reduced your chances so much that you could potentially be over the next 20 years, you could have lost $2 million. Yeah. That's crazy to think sometimes these little investments balloon to like what they, because I think in my own career, I'm like, wow, that small investment like really paid off just, I, I try to quantify it and I would, you know, maybe a hundred times over at this point. So I'm like, and more in the future, I have no clue what the future holds. I'm, I'm, I'm only 40 at the end of the day. I think it's like, oh, yeah. I'm like, I'm, oh, I got a lot, I got a lot more to go. And this is the thing, like our, we know the downside. The downside is capped at the total cost of your investment. When I, when I signed up with a coach last year for myself, okay, it was 20 grand. And I was like, okay, the worst case scenario is I get one idea out of this. I, let's say I value that idea at a one-time thing. Of, let's say that idea is worth two grand. I've lost 18 grand. Yeah. Okay, that's my worst case scenario. It's cap. It cannot get worse than that. And I've lost some time, but I've, I've gained an idea out of it. It's fine. Mm -hmm. If it works... And I can convert that 20 grand into another 100 grand per annum. I'm 43 in a couple of months. By the time I'm 65, that's $2 million extra. So I, lo I love the way you think about that. Because I, I don't usually think about it that like for, where formally or methodically, but that's a really good way to think. Because I have like just seen my investments in myself pay off in general, but I, I like the way you actually like break that down. But um, again, this is something I learned from the business world. So think about how mm -hmm. business invest. I mean, so you, you hired someone with the marketing, right? And yes, it felt like a cash outlay. But your worst case scenario is you lose all the money. Right. The yeah. best case scenario is your ROI is gas. Yeah. Okay. In business terms, everyone realizes that there's risk. And as long as the ROI is significantly more than the risk, it's worth a shot. But there's risk. Why don't we apply that standard to our personal life? We would do Absolutely. for business. Yeah. 
are you an asset or not? Like, have you ever thought, to yeah. me, my car, not the business, not my job, I am the most reliable asset I have. Totally. And if I'm not going to invest in myself, no one wants this. Man, I've, this has been an amazing conversation. This took some twists and turns that I did not fully see. I feel like I've learned a lot just talk with you. This I has won. been really amazing. I did warn you when we were chatting. I said, man, we're going to riff a bit. I warned you about that. I hope you all enjoyed this as much as I have. Before we take off, any last words for our audience? If you have any, we've covered a lot of ground, a lot of places. Any last words for people out there? Yeah, look, I think between people's self-doubt and what the world says, the, the problem with the world is free information. I genuinely believe this. It's going to completely screw up people's compasses. Completely. There's just too much noise. You cannot listen to a symphony in a room where everyone's tuning their instruments. It's going to sound like hell. Okay? So you have to find, you need one person. You do not need six more mentors. You do not need another 20 influencers. You don't, don't need another 10 books. You need one person that is good enough that you have enough rapport with or has done what you want to do and who's willing to be available for you. Go all in in that one person. They'll show you how to go all in in yourself. And most importantly, it will tune out everything else because what you need is not more information. What you need is more action. That was really good. I like that a lot. Excellent. Now, you're on the internet. I know you You do speak out. You're one of the people I feel like you absolutely should be following, especially if you're in the beginning of your journey. Where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, LinkedIn's probably the best place. So, you know, I'll, I'll put a link in the description in the show notes below. So, um, you know, slash Zubin Pratap um, and LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on X slash Twitter as well. Uh, my website is mashfitmastery.com. I don't put a lot there because I'm not into the, you know, oh, look at all the things, um, you know, and all that. I just, I put what's there for people to know how to reach me. Um, because one of the things I look for in people is initiative um, because there are going to be so many doors slammed in your face. Um, I don't want to lure people inside. I have a minimalistic site and if they want to reach out, they'll find a way and there are plenty of ways on the site. Um, and uh, yeah, LinkedIn and, and that's probably the best way to do it, man. Um, or via Brian, you know, reach, reach out to Brian and say, hey, can I get in touch with that crazy Zooming guy? And, you know, he'll tell you how to do it. I'll be your filter. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, man, thank you so much for joining. Um, Excellent to have you on. Really appreciated this conversation. And yeah, all his information and links will be in the show notes as well if you want to follow him and connect with him. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me on the show. And, and you know, for the people who are still listening to this point, um, I really hope you guys spend some time looking into to Brian's history, okay? And here's why. It's one thing to say, okay, you know, you move from lawyer to, to software engineer, but I will never forget the fact that I, I came from a place of hope and privilege compared to where Brian was, okay? You guys need to listen to his story because what's truly impressive is making something out of almost nothing when that, you know, that badly set back. I was never that badly set back. So, you know, we can talk about it. It sounds fancy saying lawyer, software engineer. Don't get fooled by the glitz of any of that rubbish. Don't learn not to get fooled by the glitz. Grit comes in dark places, not in the spotlit places. Okay. Brian's story is a story of darkness to light. You know, I was moving from relative light to relative light. Brian's a story of darkness to light that is infinitely more inspiring and infinitely more valuable. So take a look at Brian's story. That is what I'd say to most listeners. Appreciate that so much, man. Thank you. 
that'll do it for today's episode of the Develop Yourself podcast. To learn more about becoming a software engineer with us, then check out Parsity.io. If you're not quite ready for that, then jump into our dev30.xyz program, which is 30 days of working on your mindset, habits, and JavaScript skills. Totally worth it. See you next week.